is Tansley Stearns? Tansley Stearns is your greatest challenger and biggest cheerleader. Inspirational human being who loves people. Future forward leadership. Tansley Stearns is a badass. Tansley Stearns is my mom, my hero, and I love her very much. I am Tansley Stearns, and this is Despite Impossible. I am a longtime credit union executive leading Community Financial as president and CEO. I have always admired and been inspired by people whose passion is boundless and who don't comprehend the word impossible. This show focuses on their stories. Today's guest is Randy Harrington. He's a seeker, a connector, a parent, a husband, and a person who sees exponential potential when people challenge themselves and put others first. He's also the founding partner at Strategic Arts and Sciences. Randy considers himself to be both a student and a practitioner in the science and art of long-term strategic planning. This is Randy's story. Who is Randy Harrington? That's such an interesting question. (laughs) Randy Harrington is a seeker Mm. and a parent and a husband uh, but I'm, I think my own sense of self-definition is that I am a person who can see potential in other people and see goodness in other people while at the same time having a very difficult time looking at myself and doing oh, introspection. Wow. So yes. that's about as good as it gets. Finish this sentence for me. The world will be a better place when? The world will be a better place when we all live every day recognizing the profound interdependence that is the reality, that we depend on each other and that we depend on our environment. And we start realizing that we're all connected and we're connected to our environment, the world will be a better place. Yeah. When you're at your happiest, most joyful moments, you're listening to? I'm I'm listening to uh, the people that I get to work with and be with. I'm blessed by having so many just wicked, smart, lovely, talented people in my life. And when I finally shut up and actually listen to them, that's, that's a magnificent moment, a very good thing. Do you have an album you listen to from first song to last? Oh, that's a terrible question. Because it, it, <laughs> it, it, it's like, uh, you know, yes, yes. And, and so, you know, I think I could go all the way back to, uh, you know, like when I was 12 and, and I would uh, – go through Steppenwolf live and wouldn't miss a song. But that was a long time ago. Now uh, the, the album that I uh, put on uh, often when I get on a plane and I just want to track it all the way through is uh, Pat Metheny's uh, one quiet night. It's fantastic. It's just not a bad cut on it. And it just kind of gets me into a good zone. Love that. What's made you laugh out loud recently? 
Uh, oh, so uh, I got a chance to spend about a week with my three and a half year old granddaughter. Her name is Evie, and she's fantastic. She has a personality that is as as uh, as big as a as big as a bus. And she was we were playing a game. We have this ridiculous indoor axe throwing thing. It's uh, uh, it's not real axes. It's oh. it's plastic and whatnot. But uh, she was quite good at it, and she got very competitive. And she started clapping her hands and saying, "Come on, show me what you got. Show me what you got." It was fantastic. It was just amazing. <laughs> And then the other thing that made me laugh out loud was uh, Oregon is a strange place. And somebody, uh, a, a guy took down in one of our downtown areas, he had a big sign and he had a traffic sign on top of it. Oh. And it looked quite official and he looked quite official. And I walked up to see what the traffic sign was and it said silly walking zone. And he just stood there. And sure enough, as people walked by, they began silly walking and i was just like that's great i love this town yeah that was- i need that sign that's so <laughs> I awesome I know. It, it will work i mean it was just i mean very normal people walking along and they saw it and they were like sure okay that seems reasonable i'm gonna add a little little hitch to my giddy up <laughs> when was the last time you danced so hard that your feet got sore Well, it would be hard to call it dancing. We'll start there. Uh, I'm I'm not a, a dancer as much as I am a, a hopper and a twirler, but uh, I think probably one of the most intensive experiences I've had there was a Michael Franti concert at our local amphitheater here. We have a beautiful outdoor amphitheater. It's not very big, holds maybe, I don't know, maybe 2,000 people, something like that. So it's a pretty intimate space. And Franti was on fire, and every single person in that place was jumping and moving and hopping for about three hours. And it was one of those things where you get back in the car and you're just like exhausted, but so happy, exhausted, you know. Uh, and uh, I, I was uh, wearing my—I always wear Toms, those you know, little slipper shoes—and I think I destroyed a pair of those in that one concert. So it's fantastic. <laughs> When you feel down, you heal by? When I feel down, I heal by cooking. Ah, yes. So I like to cook anyway. Even when I feel good, I like to cook. But um, everybody can tell if I'm a little depressed because I start baking. (laughs) I usually don't bake. And I, I don't even, I don't like sweets particularly. But when I start baking, it's, I like that methodical, step-by-step approach. You can't leave out steps. And uh, and I like to give the food away. That makes me feel better. So whenever I can do something that is uh, oriented to compassion, it usually makes me feel better because I usually feel bad because I'm hung up on myself in some way. Baking is therapy. There are many ways in which people decompress. In Randy's case, the act of following a methodical process without deviation or need for decision-making provides comfort in easing a busy mind. And did you catch him say, baking is for others? The act of following a recipe is what provides Randy with a break. He connects it to his values by showing empathy and love for others in the process, a true win-win. What do you do to decompress? Who's someone you look up to? The first name that jumped into my head when you said that 
is my father-in-law, mm. Buff Walter. Uh, he's still with us. And I've learned more about life and family uh, and what love looks like from him. Mm. And uh, he's, he's an amazing guy. And then I also, of course, uh, get to work with three retired Navy SEAL captains, Steve Alberg and David Pittleco and Rob Monroe, amazing individuals. And I love to work with them, but I have to, I have to really kind of check the fanboy in me around them. What's really interesting about them is they're amazing, but they don't think they're amazing, which is kind of cool. And then I, I don't want to be a SEAL. I could never be a SEAL. I, I don't have any of that wannabe stuff in me. Uh, but somehow they teach me every time I'm with them. And uh, it's, it's, I just have tremendous admiration for what they've been through, what they've done. Uh, it's remarkable. Tell us about your impossible. My impossible is to find balance <laughs> and, and calm. Uh, I have a very active mind, which is a great thing, but it is extremely difficult to shut it off. It's extremely difficult to, to be still. Uh, and that is right now the big pursuit I've got. Uh, a very smart person told me I have a monkey mind. And he said, you know, it's like if, you're, if you imagine your mind is a big old banyan tree, a huge banyan tree, and there's a thousand monkeys in there. And they're chattering and they're swinging and they're jumping all around. And I've spent a long time trying to get those monkeys to just settle down a little bit. Just, just for once. Just stop. So that's kind of my impossible right at the moment. What are some of the challenges you faced that seemed insurmountable? Um, I hit a real crisis point in graduate school. Uh, and I think everybody who goes through advanced degree programs, you, you give up a little piece of your soul in the process of doing that. I really believe that. And so if people say, should I go get a PhD or should I go do this or should I go do that? And it's like, well, you know, it's going to cost you, you know, a pound of flesh somewhere along the way. That's just all there is to it. But I was in graduate school and I ended up having to go through a series of courses in advanced statistics, structural equation modeling. And it's not, it's not a strength of mine. It's not something that I'm particularly good at. And uh, I was traumatized by that course. I mean, it was I would go and take a test that I thought was the hardest test I'd ever taken in the world. And everybody else in the class, there was only eight of us, but everybody else was like, oh, that one wasn't bad. I got, you know, an 80 or a 90 on that one. And I'd get like a six, you know, so I, I, I would have to go and just... Uh, like work and work and work and work just to get by in that course. And I still have, I keep the book. I keep the book on my shelf as kind of a, a token, a reminder of it's like, it's like, you know, like keeping the bullet that you got shot with, you know, it's like, there's something about it that, uh, that really challenged me in a way I never, I lost my hair started falling out during the course I mean, you, you can't imagine it because I had to have that course. I had to have that. It was not optional. 
I had to get through that and I had to get through that at a legitimate graduate school way. And even in my dissertation defense, you know, they said, uh, so now do you appreciate structural equational modeling? And I said, I sure do. And I'll be happy to hire people to do that for me (laughs) moving forward because it's not, not for me. No. A memento. Randy kept his structural equation modeling book as a token, or as he calls it, keeping the bullet you got shot with, to remind him of the effort that went into achieving the impossibility of going through his doctorate. We do this often with social media posts, a mysterious souvenir you purchase at a gift store during your travels, or back in the day, we kept concert ticket stubs. However you choose to hold on to a sweet or bitter feeling, this ritual is part of our humanity. What type of memento do you keep close to your heart? And what feeling does it represent? How does it help you to move forward into your next impossible? Was there ever a point during your journey where you felt like giving up? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Yeah, several times. In fact, for me, it's really daunting because um, I'm a military brat. So I went to bunches and bunches of schools in different places. And I got very good at starting over Mm. uh, and redefining my personality from one place to the next. So, So quitting stopping is actually a really easy and compelling thing for me to do. It's like, I can just stop this and go do that. There's always some other alternative. <clears throat> and so it's it's a very tempting thing for me. But what's happened to me, uh, so yes, short answer is yes. I've had several times that I've had to really do strong work to stay on track and to stay disciplined uh, with, with what I'm doing. But what I've realized is that often when I want to quit, it's because I've skipped steps along the way because I've tried to go too fast. And so now if I get like, ah, I'm frustrated, I don't want to do this. It's like, uh, I got to go back. So I play music, right? I play guitar and ukulele and things like that. And I'm not amazingly good at it, but what I've realized is that you, you can't just skip steps. You know, you can't just cheat, uh, your way through that. And so I'm using those lessons every time I feel that sense of quitting. Would you share a story about a time where something went bananas that you can look back on now and laugh? Oh my, that's another good one. Uh, let's see. Um, in terms of, uh, like something at the time that was actually pretty traumatic that now I look back on and I do knee slap over it because it's really funny. Um, I have a mentor, a guy named Ty Warren, and he has been a a mentor to me since I was 18, 19 years old. So we go back a long, long way. And he had work that he was doing with the United Nations with uh, this organization called the International Fund for Agricultural Development. And he brought me into that contract uh, to work with him in Rome. And they had 80 sites around the world that were doing work mostly on bringing potable water to places that didn't have it or, or whatever in Africa and in South America and so forth. And uh, me and my colleague, our brilliant idea was to create a centralized database where those 80 sites would be able to report using 
the the World Wide Web, this would have been uh, in the uh, early 2000s. So this was all very new technology. But we were the pros from Dover. Me and my partner, we were we were going to go in there and we were going to fix these people up. We were going to get them squared away with high tech tech, and it was going to be fantastic. And we were going to have all this this data flowing in from these sites and. That would help the UN be able to say, look at what we're doing, and we were going to be heroes. And my my mentor, Ty, would say to us the whole time, don't, it's not, it's not going to work like that. You have to we have to go through this process. You can't just go in and da-da-da-da. And of course we didn't listen. And of course, we said, no, 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 just step back, let the pros do their work, you know. And we we almost started an international incident. I mean, there it 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 created huge hostility uh, among these people. I mean, there was table slamming. There was there was cursing in all kinds of foreign languages. There was people threatening one another all, at, all because of this. And essentially, uh, my partner and I got shot out of a cannon and uh, that was the end of it. And so I, I left, you know, that, that experience deeply humbled uh, uh, with tremendous hubris. And of course, when we first left, we were like, well, they're, boy, they're going to rue the day they didn't listen to us. Boy, oh boy. And after like two weeks, we found out what they were doing, which was actually much smarter than what we were suggesting. And uh, uh, I look back on that now and just all those ridiculous conversations that we had and the shock and awe of watching people just go crazy, you know, uh, anger, you know. So yeah, it was a, Total fiasco. And the fact that Ty still talks to me after this is actually remarkable. So. so achieving the impossible is one thing, but there are no fairy tales with happy endings. We achieve milestones. We keep going. What challenges is your impossible still facing? Well, you know, I'm at a point in my life where I'm looking at the end of my life. Not that I'm got any kind of terminal thing going on here. But when you get to be in your 60s, you know, the world does start changing. You do start going, you know, I can't count on, you know, long. I, I had a conversation with one of the one of our financial planners and, and he basically said, you know, don't don't plan on having to worry about having money till you're 100. <laughs> it's like, well, I, I think I understand what you're saying, but uh, and he's right. But it was still kind of hard to hear. You know, yeah. I was like, oh. Oh, that was kind of that was kind of tough. So right now, my impossible this business of of balance and stillness is is uh, becoming more important, more urgent. There's less uh, there's less reasons I can't do that. Right. So that's the that's kind of the it's my dog barking. That's yes. the person who's working in our yard right now fantastic always good during a podcast so great i love it but there you go i mean i think so my impossible right now is about how do i make a difference how do i keep making a difference for the people in my life and for the for the things i care about in this mm -hmm. world mm -hmm. as my professional life changes mm -hmm. and as my capabilities potentially diminish over time i mean it's a it's a thing i actually think about impermanence right yeah. Life is like a flash of lightning in a summer cloud. You know, it just goes so fast. And when I look at my three and a half year old daughter, uh, granddaughter, it's like, God, I remember, you know, it just goes so, 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 so quick. 
What's your advice for folks to use that fire in their bellies to really move towards making that impossible happen and ensure they don't use fear to drive inaction? Yes. I'm a big believer in one of the phrases of the Dalai Lama who says uh, that, you know, when you go and you help somebody else, you're the first person to receive benefit from doing that. Mm. And I think that's it. I mean, I think when you want to, when you've got that fire in your belly, it, it has to be about other. It has to be about compassion. It has to be about making something outside of yourself bigger. If it's about self-aggrandizing and if it's about feeding your own ego, you're going to get tripped up on it. It's just never going to be right. It's never going to work correctly. So I always like to get people to articulate the the target of their compassion. What are you really trying to do that's going to make a difference, that's going to help, that's going to have some kind of legacy uh, after you're gone? What's your next impossible, my friend? Uh, my next impossible right now is working with NASA. Um, I'm uh, So I don't know if you've been following anything that's going on in space, but over the next 12 years, we're going to have people living on the moon. And we're going to be putting those people up there in the next two or three years. And then that's going to be going on to Mars. And so NASA, particularly the Marshall Space Flight Center, is in a position where they're having to change from solid rocket boosters and all the stuff that we've associated with the shuttles and, and classic space exploration to a completely new level where we're talking about cryogenic hydrogen and we're talking about all kinds of totally different technologies. Uh, uh, space stations that assemble themselves uh, up in space by connecting to one another uh, using uh, uh, amazing new technologies. So uh, it's, it's working with them is just so daunting and overwhelming. The impossibles are endless and yet they just gnaw at it and go at it every time. And again, it's just a deep honor to be in the same room with those people uh, taking on this whole new bold future. Very exciting. Sure is. Pay attention to Artemis. Yes, it's going to be a big, big thing. This concludes today's episode. For exclusive content, visit us at despiteimpossible.com and subscribe to this podcast.